Welcome to Ground Truth, a podcast series that explores trends and developments in environmental justice, produced in partnership with the Environmental Law Institute and Beverage and Diamond. The Ground Truth series is part of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast and Beverage and Diamonds, the Environmental Law podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your usual host. Today, we are releasing an episode from our Ground Truth series with our partners at Beverage and Diamond. This series and episode are focused on environmental justice. Today, Beverage and Diamond associate attorneys Noah Urban and Claire McLeod will meet with Denise Martinez, PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis, to reflect on how both the history and recent progress in law and policy have impacted the indigenous practice of cultural burns. Before they begin, allow me to set the stage. Environmental justice is a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice dating back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the, quote, fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies, end quote. Interest in urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach, including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. Indigenous tribes, as sovereign nations, are often named by federal government as priority groups in environmental justice-focused legislation. While environmental justice in the United States, as we understand it today, is rooted in the civil rights movement, its foundational concepts are linked to the century-long resistance of indigenous peoples against colonialism and its legacies, including laws and policies that have oppressed indigenous peoples and practices. The indigenous practice of cultural burns is no stranger to this history. Georgia, thank you so much for that introduction. I'm Claire McLeod, Associate Attorney at Beverage and Diamond, and I'm thrilled to be here on Ground Truth today and to have the opportunity to meet with PhD candidate Denise Martinez to reflect on how recent progress in law and policy have impacted the Indigenous practice of cultural burns. The focus of Denise's dissertation is to find strategies for California Native communities and their collaborators to create governance and collaborative mechanisms that support tribal self-determination and governance. Using qualitative methods and community-based research, Denise's work centers the stories and narratives of cultural fire practitioners in California. Before we dive into our discussion with Denise, a bit more on the legal history behind this topic from my colleague, Noah Irvin. Thank you, Claire. My name is Noah Irvin, and I am an associate attorney at Beverage and Diamond. Prescribed burns are fires set purposefully to help maintain a healthy ecosystem. These fires have a variety of uses, including managing land for specific species, hunting, and reducing the risk of wildfires. In addition to the purely ecological advantages of prescribed burns, tribes also engage in the practice of cultural burning, the use of prescribed burns to enhance culturally important species. According to historian Stephen Pine, the elite class in Europe viewed the prescribed burns practiced by farmers and ranchers as primitive, 
This was an attitude that was then brought to America when the country was colonized. The earliest formal prohibition of prescribed burns was in 1793, when Governor Jose Joaquin de Arriaga, the governor of the Californias at the time, issued a proclamation that prohibited the, quote, very harmful practice of setting fire to pasture land, end quote, both in town and in remote areas, which he deemed to be childishness. The proclamation is directed specifically at the Christian and Gentile Indians in the area. However, this is not to say that American attitudes were entirely against prescribed burns. Even as other parts of the country were attempting to eliminate controlled burns, plantation owners in the Southeast continued to engage in prescribed burns of their private land. They had learned from the tribes in the area that the quail they enjoyed hunting would be more numerous if the brush was burned away frequently. The establishment of the Forest Service, combined with the industrialization of the country, was the turning point into total suppression of any fire, controlled or otherwise. The United States Forest Service was established in 1905 to manage lands set aside as national forests, lands which were originally protected in order to ensure that forest fires would not threaten commercial timber supplies. However, without any fire, there is an increase in burnable material in forests, such as fallen trees and dry undergrowth, which then increases the risk for wildfires. This was illustrated in 1910 when a series of forest fires burned about 3 million acres of land in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming in just two days. The Forest Service's reaction was one of total fire suppression, as it was believed that this would be the only way to prevent similar devastation from occurring again. The Forest Service's total fire suppression policy aimed to both prevent fires and to suppress any fire as quickly as possible. The Weeks Act, enacted in 1911, gave the Secretary of Agriculture the power to purchase private land as necessary to protect headwaters in the eastern United States and to maintain this land as part of the National Forest Territory. The Weeks Act allowed millions of acres of land to come under Forest Service control, about 20 million acres to date. This effectively outlawed indigenous fire management on these lands due to the Forest Service's total fire suppression policy. The transition away from this total suppression policy was due to scientific research that demonstrated what tribes had known for millennia. Fire plays a positive role in forest ecology. The Forest Service made a sharp transition from its total fire suppression to a much milder let it burn policy allowing fires to burn where appropriate in the early 1970s. While the Forest Service continues to engage in firefighting on federal lands, the total fire suppression policy was eliminated, and prescribed burns are now a frequent part of the Forest Service's work. Florida was the first state to enact a law in 1990 allowing prescribed burns. And states such as California and Oregon now use statutory frameworks and permitting to allow prescribed burns, but still retain tight control over the process. On public lands, private burns are overseen by what are known as burn bosses, who are certified and required to have up to 10 years worth of training before they are able to oversee these prescribed burns. Though federal and public understanding of the importance of cultural burns has greatly increased, there is still a ways to go.
Thank you all so much for joining us for today's discussion of cultural burns. With this, we can jump right into our discussion with Denise Martinez. Denise, thank you so much for joining us on Ground Truth. Well, thank you for having me. It's going to be a fun discussion, I'm sure. Denise, we've really been looking forward to having you on Ground Truth, and we're so happy that the day has come to jump into our discussion. Before we do so, I like to talk about how Ground Truth is an environmental justice focused podcast, but with the focus of this episode in particular being on Indigenous communities, let's begin with a level set on the intersection of Indigenous communities and environmental justice. Indigenous tribes are prioritized communities within environmental justice efforts, but can you explain how tribes are distinct from EJ communities? Yeah, so it's it's super interesting to think about EJ communities because there's, I think, EJ as a movement, EJ as, you know, a set of policies, and then EJ as an academic field. And so I do think that Indigenous people have been part of the EJ movement since its inception. But when we think about environmental justice issues and the challenges of the environment being used to disadvantage certain groups, that has been the case for Indigenous communities since colonization. So the environment was a direct tool used by settlers to harm Indigenous communities. We think about, you know, like the slaughter of buffalo and the plains, the burning of crops. It was very clear that settlers were trying to use the environment and harm to the environment to harm Indigenous people. And so that's always been a part of how we think about environmental justice for Indigenous communities. I think some other differences are also that Indigenous communities are governments, they're nations. And so when we think about policy, any government, state or federal, should be engaging with these communities as nations from a government to government relationship. And that's very different than, say, like a neighborhood or a community in the Central Valley that's made up of immigrants. They don't have a centralized government or governance processes. And so that's a big difference in terms of policy and how you engage with tribes. And then I think the last one is a little bit more nuanced in that there are tribes in California that are struggling with what you would consider under the umbrella of disadvantaged communities, which is a term used by California to talk about communities struggling with poverty and with other hardships. And there are definitely tribal communities that are struggling with those, but not all tribes would fall under that umbrella. There are tribes that have large economic programs that are supporting their community members. They have enough funding to engage in philanthropy philanthropic endeavors. Recently, some tribes have been funding, for example, like the UC to pay for California Native tuition or different endeavors like that. And so to put all tribes in the same bucket is just, it doesn't work. That's such helpful and important context. Moving on to your dissertation topic, it's a wonderful topic that you have here. And could you share a little bit about what led you to decide that this would be your dissertation topic? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was doing my undergraduate degree here at Davis, I was really interested in ecology. 
but wasn't really finding a lot of representation, a lot of support for the kinds of things that I was interested in that field until I started working as a field technician for the Kaduk tribe in Northern California. And so I spent a whole summer doing work with cultural practitioners, trying to just survey the health of cultural plants in the Klamath and Six Rivers National Forests. And so it was a lot of hiking and it was a lot of <laughs> measuring plants and, and discussing with Kaduk basket weaver Kathy McCovey and Ron Reed and Ben Saxon, who are all cultural practitioners. And it was really helpful for me to see the forest in that way. And I started to understand the cultural influences of this community on this forest and started to see the forest as a homeland, not just a place or a forest. And along with that, you know, I was invited to these collaborative spaces where the Kaduk tribe was engaging various agencies, various academics, and just being kind of a fly on the wall as, you know, a, a field technician and undergrad, I wasn't really involved as a decision maker, but I was got to be a fly on the wall and just got to see all of the challenges and the barriers and the tensions and also the successes and the close knit relationships. And it just, I guess I, I came to this point where I realized that collaboration is how a lot of cultural firework happens in California and how it works, whether it's successful, it really depends on a lot of things and including relationships, but also institutional processes. You know, sometimes you can have a really good relationship with forest service that's in your community, but they have to follow processes and mandates from a higher level that you might not agree with. And so there's so many layers to how collaborations work. And it's not necessarily as black and white as collaborations are always good or they're always bad for the tribe. It's it's a lot more nuanced. And so when I went into grad school, I really wanted to understand that more and understand how we could support tribes in navigating what can be a kind of fraught landscape. There's so much you're bringing up. I'm so excited. Can you speak more about how these two significance is of the practice interplay with each other, how the cultural significance may be linked to ecological benefits of the practice? Yeah. So I think when 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 people think about natural spaces, we tend to think about them as separate from human people, right? We we think about Yosemite National Park as a cool place to visit, but actually that is a set of circumstances fabricated by settler colonialism. So settlers very specifically removed people from natural spaces in order to conserve them. And all natural spaces were very carefully stewarded by California Native people far before colonization. And I think that settlers upon coming to California thought that it was all natural. Like they thought that Native people just were lucky to be in an abundant place. And there was a lot of racism around some language around them being lazy and like not doing agriculture. But really, when you look at California landscapes, 
it was all very carefully stewarded to support indigenous well-being. And so indigenous people's first foods were all California native plants like acorn, salmon. And so these natural spaces were actually these carefully stewarded, carefully planned spaces where where people engaged consistently. And so upon the removal of indigenous people and indigenous practices like cultural fire, a lot of these plant and animal communities are struggling. And they're struggling because they're not being stewarded in the same way that they had been. For example, it's very difficult to maintain a meadow or an oak grassland without fire. And so these spaces are being encroached. You see forests where they're so crowded and they're starting to get sick. Because of the crowding, there isn't as much water. Without water, you can't produce sap, which keeps bugs away. So they're they're starting to get sick in that way. And of course, there's also the, the broader risk of huge wildfires. So as we stop burning, the you know, the dry debris on the ground starts building up to trees, and then it becomes built up to the point where you can start burning the crowns of trees, which is how you get a whole forest decimated. And so there's all of these little and big examples of how cultural stewardship really maintained ecosystems. And so people were a critical part of that ecosystem. And so to remove people and practices is a removal of this huge piece of ecosystem functioning. And so that's kind of the ecological impact. And you can imagine the cultural impact. So as native plants are declining, You can't have your cultural foods. It's harder to access basketry materials. As as salmon die off, it's harder to access salmon. And these changes of diet have really huge repercussions for indigenous health, especially as, you know, some places where indigenous people live are food deserts. So access to healthy food is really difficult. Access to food that supports ceremony and other cultural well-being is also um, lost. So you think about spiritual health, mental health. I think because a lot of the way that cultural stewardship and relationship to land is really tied up with a sense of identity, there can also be impacts to, for example, your own sense of who you are, there's some Kari Norgard has done some work with the Kadoop tribe around specifically around gender and fire and salmon because there's such a connection between Kadoop gender and being able to do these different activities, right? And so how do you redefine how you express your gender and how you see yourself as a person, as a Kadoop person in this world? Denise, thank you so much. This is such valuable information and I think we could listen to you talk for a long time about this. Um, Could you share your perspective on how the recent shift in legal and policy barriers um, and wildfire prevention laws, policies and practices that have begun to integrate prescribed burns, how this has impacted Indigenous peoples? Yeah, so I guess I'll say that a lot of these recent laws 
policies and practices were advocated for by Indigenous people. So it, it it's kind of like the result of maybe decades of activism, of learning the system and then learning how to improve the system. It's, you know, it's this kind of decades long process to get the state to recognize cultural burning. And I think within that indigenous led prescribed burning too. So I do think that a lot of the changes are really positive. For example, Margot Robbins and Diane Almendarez, two Indigenous women, being able to take on the title of a cultural burn boss. I think that just the recognition can mean a lot for people and and also just the ability to just show up and be able to burn and not have to worry about getting a burn boss from the forest service or something, you know, like, (laughs) and so these have been really positive changes. I do think that it would be helpful as the state is trying to include more cultural burners and also just trying to include more indigenous people in their projects. I think there's been like a clamoring to, to speak to indigenous cultural fire practitioners, people telling me that they have a bajillion emails from people a day. And it's really hard to sift through which are good collaborations. It's really hard to say no to things all the time. And I think that on the agency side, I've heard people say like, oh, well, we reach out to the tribe, but they never get back to us. And I think that as the state kind of inflates the need for Indigenous input, I think that they should be also investing in Indigenous and tribal staff to be able to respond to their inquiries because they're they're inflating the amount of inquiries that are coming into tribes, which is good. But I think there is, again, like a need for tribes to have more funding and support to to have staff to, to respond and to work with the state on these things. I also think that in terms of their own staff, so CAL FIRE staff or Forest Service staff, There needs to be more folks that understand how to collaborate with tribes and what that means and just a general training on what folks need to know about tribes. I think that there's a huge lack of basic history and understanding of what tribes are and what tribes have been through in California. And that's, I think, just a a general problem. But I think when we're talking about the state mandating or requesting that all of their staff engage with tribes on these projects and the staff don't have the training and they don't have, you know, an an understanding of the true history of California, it kind of can, it can be a huge lift for everyone involved if there isn't these other support pieces like more funding for tribes to have greater staff, more training on the basic history of California, and then people who are actually have expertise in collaborating with tribes within agencies. Building on that description of the disconnect between the state, federal government, even local government in working with tribes on this issue, you definitely have a unique perspective within your work collaborating with tribes, the government, and within academia. Can you touch on the disconnects or uh, maybe even joint function that academia plays in that role between those sectors and institutions? Academics are really interesting. So I think that there is 
power, whether it's deserved or not, (laughs) of being a scientist and having these credentials. And um, I think that sometimes I, as a community-based researcher, kind of see my role as supporting community and asking their own questions and then accessing information that will help them make their argument. You know, tribes have been saying that cultural burning is important for the state for a really long time. And I think it, in some cases, it took an academic coming, doing the research, getting the research peer reviewed for the state to start to listen. And so I I think it's good. I just, I I get frustrated that communities have to go through all that to, to just say something. I think that's wrong, especially when I think about these projects are like what, like maybe like a three year project looking at a specific plant when tribes have thousands of years of knowledge on a landscape and they can't be listened to like that feels wrong. But that is a role that some scientists can play. I do think that there's also a role of as the climate changes, as environmental degradation causes our ecosystems to to just change so rapidly. There is a need, I think, from tribes that tribes have research questions. They have questions about how things are functioning. And there's a lot of really great opportunity for partnerships answering those questions together. And I know that, for example, like the Kaduk tribe has a really robust research program. I've been lucky to work with Ron Good and Diane Almanderas and publish together on on different topics. And so there's, I think, a really great opportunity for partnership there. I think in terms of the state government, I think there's some really great opportunity to be kind of like a bridge between community and state government. So my research group has organized these cultural burn workshops led by elders where they get to decide who's invited. And a lot of times they do want to invite policymakers and agency folks. And so we help them organize that. And these people from agencies come and they're trained by elders and we just get to be kind of like the middle person at times. And and some of the relationships have evolved where they now are a part of this cultural burn workshop community. And they come every year and they get to be leaders in their own agencies and fields to understand, you know, how to work with cultural burners. And so just, I think sometimes just opening a space can be helpful and like putting the academic title or the university title can, can make things more accessible for people from agencies who might otherwise feel uncomfortable. Denise, you've discussed a lot about your work in California, but from the legal and policy perspective, the Southeast United States has kind of led the legalization and implementation of prescribed burns, while the West Coast comparatively is lagging behind. Why do you think that this lag exists despite, as we've all seen, the devastating impacts of the wildfires that are happening to West Coast communities? I think it's cultural in part. I also think that there's an ecological difference. The Southeast U.S. is a lot wetter, um, so the risk is lower. And as we know, um, Cal Fire and the U.S. Forest Service are risk averse. I think that's part of it. I think there is a lot of interest um, from folks in California about what are the legal mechanisms that are making it so much easier to start a prescribed burn in the Southeast U.S. versus up here. But yeah, I think a lot of it is cultural, like you you mentioned in, in the background. 
I think that history is is a big part of it and and the ecology, I would say. Denise, your dissertation focuses on strategies to create governance and collaborative mechanisms that support tribal self-determination and governance. Would you say there's an overall best practice or practices, even general themes from your findings uh, in this regard so far? Yeah, so some of some of them I shared earlier in terms of building capacity at the tribal level to respond to all of these collaborative requests, um, training and more staff that's capable of tribal collaboration on the agency side. I do think that a lot of times when we think about capacity building, we think about, you know, what do tribes need in order to meet the requirements needed by agencies to burn. I think that's a reality. And I do think, again, I do think that there needs to be investment in tribal communities in order to engage in collaboration. But I've noticed that there's also a huge lack of understanding, a huge lack of expertise within agencies to support tribal collaboration. And I think that there's definitely really great people doing work within agencies but I find that every almost everyone I talk to is a little overworked. And so I think there's an opportunity to build expertise within agencies. I think another piece that I've found is around trust. And I think that when you talk to agency folks about what it, it takes to build trust with tribes, there's a lot of conversation around capacity and do tribes have the capacity to burn. And I think that's kind of reflecting a larger narrative about agencies having jurisdiction and giving giving away um, responsibilities, and but we're still liable. Like I, I think it, it's a reflection of that larger conversation. And definitely, I think a mindset shift to think, oh, this is Indigenous land and Indigenous people know a lot about it. I think that's still a mindset shift that needs to happen. But I think that when you talk to tribes about building trust, it feels bigger on that side. It feels like cultural fire practitioners talk a lot about we can't even talk about collaborating until we talk about the genocide that happened here, until we talk about the violence that that was very recent. You know, we're talking about people's, maybe people's great-grandparents, maybe their grandparents that experience violence from these agencies, whether that looks like arrests, incarceration, whether that looks like harassment from employees of these agencies and, and, you know, and not to mention the violence of contact and genocide. And so those conversations need to happen. You can't just expect people to trust you with their knowledge, with their time, with their youth, if you are not going to even be willing to entertain that conversation. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. and. I think that as as we kind of require people to be collaborating more and we are kind of rushing towards a goal of like, I think, a million acres a year. And, you know, there's so much antsy, like this is urgent and like the climate crisis and wildfire. And I think that there also needs to be an ongoing conversation about like, how do we heal from this? Because we're creating a future beyond climate crisis. That's our goal. Our goal is to be able to make it through this moment of crisis together. 
what's on the other side? And I think that that's a question that sometimes people think is like, oh, well, we really need to deal with the climate crisis. Well, it also takes time to build something different. It takes time to build a world where we don't abuse the earth. And it takes time to to build an earth where we have justice. And so how do we build that? And we need to start having those conversations too. There's without a doubt a long path forward. Denise, moving toward kind of how cultural burns have evolved, how has the modern practice of cultural burns evolved? And how do you foresee this evolving in the future? I think that there's been a lot of changes in terms of adapting to the way the climate is changing. I think also adapting to the fuel buildup. So cultural burning used to be a lot more about broadcast burning where you set a fire and it kind of just carries through the landscape. And it's only safe to do that if your fuel load is fairly low and if you're doing this fairly consistently. And so because fuels are so high, often um, before any burning can be done, you kind of have to assess that. You have to do more pile burns, which is where you pile all the fuel and it's easier to take care of in kind of a more centralized location. And I think that's one way I've seen it change. I think there's also been a lot of adaptation to the political landscape. And so there's For example, the Kaduk Women's Treks, a training exchange led by Kaduk women. And so it is an indigenous and cultural burn, but they have to have their certification. They're wearing hard hats. They're wearing full fire safety clothing and boots. And that's just different than, you know, like a family led burn. Like when we burn with Ron Good, it's much more relaxed than that because it is on private property we can have children and elders be a part of it. I think the Kedig women also were able to do that, but they had to be at a distance. And so there's like these different little adjustments that you make based on what is needed because of the, you know, the policy on the land you're standing on because of liability rules. It's a lot of adjustments to that kind of policy landscape. But I do think that tribes are trying to become more Indigenous-led. There's a lot of, I think, intertribal support, especially with the new rules around cultural burn bosses and allowing for cultural burn bosses. I think that there's a lot of support where people would rather rely on, say, like a cultural burn boss from a different tribe than a U.S. Forest Service burn boss or like a Cal Fire burn boss. And so there's a real emphasis and effort going into being Indigenous-led. There's a real emphasis and effort into family burning and doing it as intergenerationally as possible. At that Kaduk Women's Exchange, in talking to the organizers, they were really focused on like, how do we get childcare so that mothers can come out? Is that's like an often a barrier for folks is just getting childcare. And for them, that's really important because Kaduk women were the ones that led burning traditionally. Like that's that's who burned the landscape. And so having women of all ages, of whether they're mothers or not, that was all really important. And so I think that there's a huge focus on intergenerational involvement of everyone. And then I do think that there's also an emphasis which I think has always been there. I don't know if it's like an evolution, but there's an emphasis on including basket weavers 
and including the folks that will actually end up using the material. Like I've heard from elders, it's important for people to understand why we're doing this and kind of keeping the why at the forefront of this effort, which I think takes takes a lot out of people, right? Like activism and and the actual work of stewardship takes takes a lot. And so to keep the why at the forefront is just a way to keep us all motivated and centered. And so we have basket weavers. We talk a lot about how the practice will help bring back languages. We talk about how not just developing the knowledge of how cultural burning was done in the past, but also how to develop new knowledge, how to be observant, how to be in the moment and be grounded. And I think all of that has really developed at least my skills and other people's skills on the fire line, you know, just understanding how to learn from the land and how to listen. Denise, from your perspective as an academic in this space, particularly on law and policy, how much progress has been made and how much farther do we have to go? I think a lot of progress has been made. And I like to, again, emphasize that that was so much work on communities to get that done, to get that process done and to get their knowledge acknowledged by the government so that they can do the work that they see as their responsibility. I do think we have further to go. And I maybe it's because I've spent this time kind of diving into these micro processes and collaborations. But I I do think that a lot of the work right now is on process and on how we apply these policies that have just passed. I think California can sometimes make really big statements when it comes to environmental justice and in this case, like indigenous involvement and cultural burning. Big statements that sound wonderful. (laughs) And I think the application of them is where it gets kind of like, ooh, are you really doing that? I don't know. And so I think that's where my focus is right now, because I think that the cool thing about those statements is that you can hold the state accountable to them. And I think that as an academic, one of my roles is to say, hey, like this is actually the best way to do that. The thing you said that you were going to do already and kind of just holding them accountable to that. But yeah, I think that there's a lot to go in terms of stewardship. There's a lot of land that we all need to steward. And I think I always like to tell people that you can do it too. There's, you know, tribes have, you know, volunteer days. And and it's so empowering to be a part of this movement because it's so scary, right? Like every summer to see the big wildfires and to, to not feel like you can do anything. And I think that there's so much land We need a lot of people. And so if you want to get involved, see if your local tribe has volunteer days. There's just a lot of ways. There's prescribed burn associations. So look look out for those opportunities and empower yourself and become a part of this movement. Denise, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. This has been a riveting conversation. Echoing all of Noah's thanks to you, Denise for being here, for sharing your knowledge with us, and for everything that you've done to elevate the stories and narratives of cultural fire practitioners in California. Oh, thank you both so much for having me. I, you know, it's really great to talk to you both. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ground Truth, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment 
prosperous economies, and vibrant communities, founded on the rule of law, and Beverage and Diamond, a national firm specializing in environmental law. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. To learn more about ELI, visit www.eli.org. For more on Beverage and Diamond, visit bdlaw.com.